This presentation is from UX Australia 2022, day two. Thank you so much. Um, I'm Jen. It's great to uh, sort of meet you all from afar. And I'm excited to share our experiences here today with you about scaling UX culture. Um, I'm currently a senior UX manager at Google. I've held roles at Facebook. I've held roles in um, academia and industry. I currently teach. So I've been around and I've been scaling UX culture all over the place. And now I would love for the panelists to introduce themselves as well and tell you a little bit about some of their roles. And, um, and then we'll get started talking about how to scale UX culture. So Julie, over to you. Ben. Hi, everybody. Uh, happy to be chatting with you from Singapore. So I'm Julie. I'm a UX lead over at Google. I work on our next billion users team. Uh, from uh, We all actually used to work together at Facebook, but previous to that, I worked at Autodesk and the BBC. And I've been a researcher for uh, about 15 years, and I've been really excited to kind of go into a broader UX space later. So that's about me. Um, over to you. I here we go. All right. Oh, should I go next? <laughs> Awkwardly. Sorry, Nika. I think I just jumped in front of you. Hey, everyone. Uh, thanks so much for having us today. I'm super excited to be um, joining you. I'm in Seattle, Washington. And like Jen, or like Julie said, I met these uh, three lovely ladies in at Facebook. I uh, worked over there for almost five years, and now I'm at Google managing a team in various cities across the world. So I'm excited to share with you the work that I've been doing to help my teams scale over these past several years. Nika. Hi, everyone. I'm Nika. I am a senior design researcher at Microsoft. Um, uh, I have also worked at Facebook and Google, um, but currently elsewhere. Um, I've also worked at Concur, uh, Ford Motor Company. Um, I've uh, spent about half of my career in consulting as well. Uh, so I've uh, worked in the space of uh, motivating and encouraging the growth of UX culture in a variety of uh, situations and team structures. Really happy to chat with you today. Awesome, thank you all so much. Um, all right, so why don't we start by giving this a bit of a definition, and I'm going, going to stop this so we can all be nice and big here. How's that? Um, so why don't we start by talking about what we even mean by scaling a UX culture? What, what are we even talking about here? What does this mean to you? Maybe Julie, well, maybe why don't we jump start in on this one? Uh, yeah. So I wanted to share a little bit, part of what I'd work on here at Google is our UX community and culture team, which is a team that's sort of dedicated to thinking about how we do UX uh, across all the different products and teams. And the people that I'm working with are from you know, many different parts of the world, from India to Sydney to uh, Taiwan, Japan, in the US, on the East Coast, the West Coast, throughout Europe, and also in Africa. And that broad spread of people, it makes it kind of hard to connect to a culture as a singular place or a sense of who we are and what we're doing. And I think a UX culture can be characterized by a couple important points. One is I think that a UX culture is focused on how we do our work. How do we think about the people that we're building for? And the second is the process that we go through with our work itself, understanding what tools do we use? How do we communicate with each other? And the last one is something more in this like softer space of like, what are the norms that a team will use to work with each other and also communicate to partners outside? 
So I think it's it's crucial to how we run our work that we like also get really crisp on uh, not only the what we're doing, but the how we're doing it. Great, thanks for, for setting us up here about what we're even talking about here when we talk about UX culture. Obviously super important, we've been uh, working remotely for a long time, many people have been working remotely. So UX culture is something that I think is top of mind for many companies and many managers, many leaders, and how do we sustain a UX culture when we have distributed teams and you know folks working all over the place. Um, can you all share a little bit about what that is for you? So what is your experience, your team's experience right now, or even just over the past couple of years, maybe it's changed a bit, but can you share a bit about what that looks like? What does that work set up? Jen, just to double check, are you talking about like the location and where the projects are situated or like yeah, so your actual teams, we've, we've talked a bit about where we're all in different locations right now, but also your teams, where are your teams actually um, seated? Maybe Rebecca, you can see. Okay, um, so I'm currently in Seattle and I have a small team here in Seattle that I work with, but my, the majority of my teams are in uh, San Francisco, uh, down in Mountain View, and I have a team over in New York City, but I also have a really large team over in Tokyo and a few partners that are in London. So you can imagine how the time zones really, you know, make it difficult for us to meet and talk to each other in a regular time that's not somebody staying up late or getting up too early. So it's been a, a real challenge, but it's been a fun thing to try to untangle and figure out. And how about you, Nika? <laughs> Um, so uh, at Microsoft, we have been hybrid um, since uh, for a very long time now. And um, the the team that I work on has 16 folks and we're spread. Uh, you know, many of us are, are in the Redmond area, which is where Microsoft is based. Um, but most of us work from home. Um, some folks go into the office. We also have a team member who's in Rome, a team member in New York City, a team member in San Francisco. Um, I believe one in Idaho. Um, and then our product partner teams are distributed across uh, London, Hyderabad, and Beijing. So we're working across a ton of time zones um, just to stay in touch with our product teams. Um, and for me, the number one thing that has made that possible is being relentless about communication. Um, of course, we use Teams at Microsoft and uh, Teams has been my number one way to stay in touch with people, uh, both through you know um, live conversations, video calls, but also using chat um, and posts. Um, it's become more so than email as the place to uh, stay in touch and communicate and share documents um, and make sure that we're all following the process and that we're all being user focused um, and you know that we all have that motivation together. All right, I hope you guys can hear me now. Um, I uh, wanted to add that over on my side of the house, I sit out in APAC like a lot of you folks. And it's been a challenge because I think a lot of us will work with other regions as well. So as I mentioned, we've got uh, quite a few folks across the uh, Asia Pacific region, but also a lot of our work happens back with the headquarters in the US. And uh, more and more of our work is also focusing on Africa. So yet another time zone to add into the mix. And that's become quite tricky because it 
starts to affect work-life balance. It starts to affect that um, some of your asynchronous communication methods become uh, a little irritating over time as well. And that's a constant challenge to think about how to fix it together. Uh, one thing that I think we found works really well is to use a, like a, a bot almost that allows for casual check-ins between people to help people learn and connect in an informal way. And once you have these informal connections, then it, the, the formal work sort of follows more closely. I think that's a good point. If I can just add something in there. <clears throat> once you're able to kind of build a connection between your teams in a more personal, like authentic way, it helps deal with some of the gaps that we experience being remote, being in real life, being in different time zones, being in different cultures. You know, there's a lot more empathy that gets built into that the experience of working together. And I think that's really important to focus on. Yeah, absolutely. I have felt the same. I have team members in London and New York and uh, the Bay Area, and we've had meetings sometimes with people in Australia, and it's really difficult to work across those different time zones. And I think some of these asynchronous collaboration tools really help us to stay connected and make sure everyone's in the loop when there are important things taking place and just understanding what what other team members are working on. How about, let's talk, yep, go ahead. Uh, mentorship is like a huge part of how you are able to kind of connect the uh, the culture of a team. And so not only giving like an explicit buddy, but also using like mentorship as a way to help people learn how to uh, appropriately self-promote their work or how to appropriately escalate an issue. But like that mentorship is a really crucial and um, useful way for people to connect as well. I imagine that's especially important in onboarding so that the team, the new team member can learn like what are the, the cultural norms on the team and the tools that are being used and which one's appropriate for what instance, like, should I ping this one or should I email this one, uh, right? So it's sort of really critical. I'm glad you brought that up about mentorship. It's super important to help people get onto the team early on. Absolutely. Yeah. Can you say a bit more about that? So I was going to ask about uh, forming teams. When forming teams and you have new people onboarding, uh, mentorship seems to play a role. What, uh, what other things do you consider to um, keep the team together and to really foster a culture, even though you have a distributed team across different time zones and you know folks aren't in, in person together? One thing that my team does, um, which is not revolutionary, but you know, it's just a simple thing that um, I think has helped a lot um, is you know we keep an onboarding document for new hires, um, and this contains everything from you know just general welcome to the team, here's who everyone is, to these are the distribution lists that you should join. Um, if you have you know we we try to add new hires to everything, every team, every distribution list every project um, that they need to be before they even start. Um, but if there's additional ones that you know we, we want them to know about, uh, we let them know about those in the onboarding doc. Um, we provide primers for all the various tools that we're using. Um, and then every new hire gets an onboarding buddy um, who is just, it's basically like a casual mentorship, um, but everyone can be an onboarding buddy. I think mentorship can often be uh, a little bit of gate kept to the senior staff members, um, whereas an onboarding buddy can be a junior researcher or a junior designer, um, someone who's just really passionate about providing a great experience for new folks. Um, and they meet one, you know, throughout the week, at least once a week, um, just to kind of chat about how things are going, 
Um, it, it's your place to ask the questions that you feel are really dumb that need to be answered. Um, and you feel like you have someone on the ground helping you. Awesome, I love the idea of a buddy because even if someone doesn't feel comfortable reaching out to the whole group or using some of these asynchronous tools to ask others what they're doing, they have that one person that they can reach out to at any time. And I find those buddy, those pairs persist even after the, the new period has run out. You know, you really end up with a buddy at your company for quite some time, you know, for even after you leave the company sometimes. Yep. Um, anything to add there, Julie and Rebecca, about forming teams and various things to consider? Yeah, I was going to say that one of the things that we've also experienced, uh, perhaps many of you as well, is reworks. So not only mm -hmm. new people come in from uh, coming from the outside into the company, but also teams grow and shift. And I think you might have heard guys out there that it, um, the, the economy is not so good. So uh, there's a lot of changes going on in our worlds right now. And I think being receptive to new teammates coming in with their own cultures, helping them understand any differences that might exist, and also being open to kind of adapting and changing the culture on your team to best fit the kind of new group that you might find yourself in is really, really important to think about as well. I, I'll, I agree to all these things and definitely think they're helpful. I want to add another thing that I've found helpful is just setting up some milestones for the new person or new people that are joining your team. So they know like what's the most important thing for them to do first. For me, it's always like go around and meet the people that you're going to be working with, the people who make the decisions to just get to know them and the things that's on their mind. And since I'm in research, one of the questions I always have people ask is, their background in research, like ask, ask your stakeholders, like what kind of experience they've had with research to kind of figure out what you're going to be working with. Like, do you need to get them to like buy into your work? Do they, do they need to be introduced to how you do it, et cetera. I'm about to onboard a new team member over in Tokyo and that team hasn't had research yet. So they're like, they've been around for a few years and they are hungry for research. And I've, we've been talking a lot about how to prepare that researcher as they're coming in because they're just gonna get flooded with all sorts of requests. So I'm already doing a pre-prioritization um, exercise with that team to make sure they're not just like throwing everything their way. Um, and I think that that's gonna be really helpful in giving them the scaffolding to be more successful as they're onboarding into the team. Um, and that I think the trick in this as well is that this person's coming from Hungary and going to be going into Tokyo. So there's also going to be a cultural shift that they're going to have to learn and deal with. And there's something I think that's really been helpful for me. I'm just going to mention it here. And uh, maybe <clears throat> if the if Annabelle, I don't know if you can show this with uh, the entire conference, but I think I link people to this like at least once a month. But uh, Geert Hofstede is a researcher that did some work to figure out how people are different, uh, have different working styles across different cultures, and you can compare them. So you can bring up Hungary and Tokyo and see across these, like, I think there's five dimensions, how do they show up at work and what do they like and what, what do they expect? What are the things that they're worried about? So I use that pretty often as like kind of a cheat sheet to figure out like, how is my working culture different from somebody else's that's in another part of the world or coming from another part of the world? So uh, definitely recommend checking that out. It's a free resource online. Awesome, thank you for that. <clears throat> Excuse me. So you've all had um, careers and experiences where we were not in this modern hybrid world. Um, and now we are all in this, I, we at least, and, and many folks on the, on the call and in the audience are also 
um, in this new world. Can you give any examples of new practices that were put into place as a result of uh, this new hybrid environment? And in general, what kind of um, feedback it generated, whether it was performance-wise, it was morale-wise, if things were taken well, if you had to tweak things and iterate, like what are some new things you had to try as a result of this new hybrid work, working way? Well, I bet everybody was trying happy hours at the very beginning of all of this, right? That's the <laughs> first thing that came to my mind. <laughs> What's yeah. that, Nika? That was yeah. the first thing that came to my mind that changed was we started doing virtual happy hours with, you know, yeah. those online tools where you can uh, play Hangman or uh, Pictionary or whatever um, through Zoom. It helped a little. Yeah, a little. One thing we found was really helpful is to get um, Airbnb experiences or something similar like this, where you can in sort of invite the team to all virtually go somewhere and experience something together. I think a lot of people were very creative and continue to be quite innovative in how they're sharing them. And even now in a hybrid environment, we've seen a lot of success with this. For example, the team really wanted to learn more about Nigeria and its culture and the many diverse people that live there. So um, at a point when travel wasn't possible, some people were already back in the office in Singapore. So we had about 20 people in the office. And then we also were able to dial in folks from all around the world at the same time to listen in to someone giving us a kind of tour of their neighborhood and talking about the history there. And that was a great way for people to sort of both be in person as well as to be hybrid with that as well. Awesome. So uh, I'll just add one other thing. Um, so I work in um, both the software and hardware space. I work on mobile devices and we have a uh, hardware design lab, um, which uh, now that we're um, hybrid, uh, some folks are going into to, to do their design work in the lab instead of at home, um, which I imagine was quite challenging to do at the beginning of COVID. Um, but because not everyone is in the office to visit the lab and see all the like really cool physical prototypes that they're working on, um, the team has started to um, build these like uh, video reels, we call them sizzle reels, um, that are really sexy and they show off um, the prototypes and uh, they're just usually like these quick two to three minute videos that are really easy to consume. We can show them in um, every meeting that it's relevant to so that everyone, regardless of location, can see what's going on in the design lab. Um, and that's been really great um, as somebody who doesn't go into the office, but is eager to see all of this cool stuff that's being built, um, to have that connection with the design team virtually um, when previously it would have all been done in person. Yeah, awesome. One thing that we did that was different from when we were working in person was we talk a lot more about burnout and how to stay balanced and tips and tricks and strategies to like step away from your computer and put the work away and being okay with that and not feeling guilty because it's like in the middle of the workday and you're expected to be at your computer, you're expected to be working. But when you're on your computer all day going back to back uh, with meetings all day, that can be you know, really stressful. And uh, we have, we had a bigger focus on burnout than I've had in my entire career. 
Um, all right, we have a we have a few questions from the audience. Feel free to put your questions in Q and A because as they're relevant, I might grab them or we might just come back to them at the end. Uh, but we do have a question here. What are some regular types of team rituals bearing in mind those time zones and what kind of cadence do you have for running those? So some team rituals. Yeah, I will jump in on that one. I, I think the pre-planned weekly meeting where everyone stands up and talks about what the, what the work they've been doing, I've personally found those to be really soul sucking when it comes to being online, a bit performative as well. Like you leave the meeting and you're like, I don't know if I actually learned anything coming out of it. So some teams I've worked on have shifted that to be digital. All the updates happen in a shared document or on a channel that would help people discuss what, you know, even reply to the things that uh, people are sharing. And instead of using those kind of team moments to focus on things we all need to discuss together. What is there some uh, new information that the leader needs to pass down? Is there maybe some, uh, you know, new change from another team that we need to hear about and having a discussion and focusing the format to a active discussion uh, use of the time we found to be really, really helpful. So I think that's been one way to kind of make our work side of our culture and our relationship a little more productive. Uh, whereas maybe being in person, it felt a bit different. A standup was kind of nice. Everyone shuffled in with their coffee and, you know, chatted for a bit and then you were literally standing so it could only last for so long. I think the online meetings for me have felt a little um, performative. Yeah, I think as in regards to meetings, like it uh, feels like now that we're all Remote, well, I'm mostly remote in my role and a lot of my team members have a mix of between remote and in the office or a little bit of both. And I'm finding this problem where our back-to-back -back meetings don't allow for those people who are actually in the office to get to the next room, the next floor, you know, whatever it is, stop and get a drink on their way to the next meeting. So like, while I can just click and dial right into my meeting, I'm waiting like five minutes for the other person who's actually in the office to get into the call. Um, so what we've started doing is um, booking all of our meetings to start at five minutes past. So there's a buffer and it's actually brilliant because it gives me time to stand up, get away from my desk, take care of myself, do something else for a change of scenery or whatever. Um, and it's giving that other person time to like adjust and get ready for the meeting as well. So that's really helped a lot. And I think um, it has made a big difference in the way that I feel just at the end of the day even. I'll echo uh, my team has been doing the same things. We we start our meetings um, five minutes late for 30 minute meetings and 10 minutes late for hour long meetings um, so that everyone has a time to time to stretch their legs, um, check in on chats or emails uh, in between meetings, um, get their head on straight, uh, which is definitely something I need. Um, and uh, we've also moved a lot of our like kind of weekly sync, like just updating to a digital format and focusing the team meetings on the, the pieces of information that really matter. And the, you know, basically the places to have a, a session where people need to complain or weep over a reorg, um, you know, and have like build empathy together. That's what we use meeting times for instead of using a meeting to cover everything. Mm -hmm. I like that a lot, Nika. I think not only um, emotional support can be good in these, but one thing I think would be a really great new addition is looking at new forms of recognition of how to reward and highlight the great work that's going on 
for teams. So there's a number of ways I think that people can do this, whether it's like a kudos board or whether it's like people just saying out loud, you know, their thanks for someone. Some, you know, teams have internal reward systems or tools. But I think for all the leaders in the audience today, I'd really put a challenge out for you to try to be very intentional in doing this even more than you had been before, because people can feel very isolated and remote, whether they're coming in the office, whether they're fully remote or somewhere in between. Um, so that being really intentional about the recognition you're giving out on the team and making sure that like people are being recognized for good work they're doing. Very, very crucial these days. Yes, and <laughs> add to that. Um, the state of the world is so stressful right now. There's so many things going on outside of the work that we do from day to day. So being sensitive to that, I think, is really important. And then figuring out how your your person needs you to show up. Like not every one of your you know team members is going to want you to ask about their weekend, but maybe there is one that really wants you to know who their partner is, know about their kids, and like when their birthdays are. You know, really figuring out what helps that person feel like they're supported and cared for is something to double down on in the beginning of all your check-ins with that person because they're bringing a lot into the, our meetings and um, it can really add to the burnout that they feel. Absolutely. Another thing we've done is um, within each time zone still have, now that we're back in person, still have um, some in-person events. So like a team dinner, recently we went bowling. It becomes difficult when your team is dispersed. So I've asked like, like I only have one direct report in the Bay Area, but we have other peripheral team members. So I've asked them to form kind of a pod so they could get together in person every so often. Um, I've, I've flown her out so she could join us in New York before so that she could be a part of our team. So really being creative about how we could still stay in touch and have that in-person feel, if that's an option. You know, it may be too costly to fly your entire team if everybody is completely dispersed, but even if there's just a couple people, you know, encouraging them to do something together in person. So you're you're still um, growing those relationships in a way that, you know, we used to, that's not just on the screen. All right, so we've talked a bunch about our teams and building teams and whether that's our direct reports or our peers, but let's talk for a moment about stakeholders and people who are who are outside of our direct team, let's say. Um, any tips for working with stakeholders in these different time zones? This is a passion area of mine, so I'll jump in. Um, I love having a great relationship with my stakeholders, and I am known for building relationships with stakeholders that are difficult and um, uh, stakeholders that don't understand research, um, that maybe are a little hesitant about research. Um, these are like my favorite types of interactions. Um, and it is challenging. Uh, building that relationship when you're, vir you're, you're hybrid, you're virtual, um, but it's still incredibly important, um, especially as a researcher, to make sure that you're plugged into what the PMs are thinking about, what the engineers and designers are thinking about, um, and making sure that they know who you are. Um, that's really been the, the like number one step for me, is just making sure that my stakeholders know who I am, or that they know who my direct reports are, um, and just setting up regular one-on-ones um, to just get to know them. We don't even have to get down to business, um, but that first one-on-one -on -one is going to be about like, 
you know, who are you? How long have you been at the company? Uh, what else have you worked on? Where else have you been? What are your, you know, what are your hobbies? Um, what do you like to do in your spare time? Um, just getting to know them. I know this sounds cheesy, but it has worked for me so many times um, to just show I'm a human, you're a human, we're going to work together. Let's get to know each other. And then we get into, okay, what is research? Um, what's your experience with research? Um, what do you, you know, what do you think research is? And asking these types of questions to see like what level they're at. Um, and then from there, being able to maybe correct some misunderstandings or uh, level set, you know, explain what research does and doesn't do um, and let them know specifically, this is what I am going to provide to you. This is what my team is going to provide to you. And here's what I need you to provide to me in return and kind of making a deal. Um, and then all future one-on-ones are about checking in to see if we're maintaining that deal. Um, and that has been really successful for me, um, you know, just to make sure that the, the stakeholders I work with know that they can come to me anytime they have a, a research question or an idea. Um, the designers can come to me when they want to make sure that I'm included in, um, you know, providing design feedback. Um, they want to hear my voice um, because they know that I care. And um, that has really helped us get through these challenging times. Um, regardless of our location. I think I have a question for you. Since your teams are based all over the place, do you have any pockets of teams that they just don't feel that connected to headquarters? And um, if you have that, or if anybody else on the panel has this, like, what do you do to resolve that? Like, how do you work around that? I'm having a, a, this problem in one of my, one of my um, locations. That's a really great question. I feel like um, the, the teams that I work with are uh, have pretty good presence. Um, you know, I'm thinking specifically India, um, London, uh, and China. Um, but those are major office locations for us. Um, and you know, there's a lot of um, stakeholders there uh, across discipline. Um, Julie, maybe you have some thoughts here. Yeah, absolutely. I sit a 16 hour flight away from a bunch of the people on the team and from headquarters. And so I think probably like many of you in the audience today that really affects how work gets done because even unintentionally meetings can happen at two in the morning and maybe like many of you I've often had to set an alarm so I can make a meeting at four in the morning because it just can't be moved for many perfectly reasonable reasons to another time and that result over time sort of builds up this feeling of being disconnected and I think one solution we've seen that could work well is um, making sure that leadership is showing up and they're aware of their responsibility to help include different sites as well so that involves uh, training for them, um, also holding each other accountable. It's hard work. It's not easy to make everybody feel included and connected, but it has to be done in kind of an explicit way. And there are real specific skill sets people can use, right? Like there's your casual ping, there's all the sorts of tools that are out there. Even just um, joining in some of the fun events that are happening can help uh, keep different groups from feeling disconnected from each other. And I think this UX culture we've been talking about from the beginning, we should all be aware it isn't like sort of evenly applied across everyone at all places at all times. People's kind of in engagement with that culture can rise and fall. Our stakeholders engagement in that can kind of rise and fall. And it's a it's a tricky thing. And I think I really would put the um, the responsibility for that on 
uh, on us, on the leaders who are thinking about how to include those sites and encouraging people on both sides to make that effort. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. If there's budget, I would fly folks out. Like this year with the, the opening of, you know, many offices and in, in much of the world, we've had a lot of team offsites and uh, summits planning for next year and things like that. And those in-person events have really gotten people to gel and feel like they're part of the team. We have so many people who started during the pandemic, you know, they never even set foot in, into one of our offices. So there was a disconnect in terms of feeling a connection to the company and headquarters or, you know, um, so having those in-person meetings has been really helpful. There's a great question here on the chat about how to encourage people to turn on their cameras, which is a very small but significant way of helping people connect. One thing we did, I don't know if this is helpful for you, but we actually sent kind of small knickknacks with the um, company branding on it to people's homes. And then we'd say like, hey, now everybody like bring out your little stuffy or bring out your little, you know, knickknack or whatever it was. And people could like show each other um, that thing. We also sometimes encourage people to sort of share their home setup, like take your phone and then like take a picture of your work set up there is, um, it's kind of a fun way to get to see people from a new perspective. I'm gonna actually push back a little bit on this question um, because I this is something that I think is really important. Like I, it's a great question, but uh, one thing that we need to think of is being um, inclusive of uh, all the folks in our team. And there are many people, including people who are neurodiverse, who, um, are uncomfortable with turning their cameras on or turning their camera on can actually create a, uh, a, a distraction. Um, it can overstimulate them um, and can cause them to be less effective in a meeting. So the general rule that my team has is um, when you're in a one-on-one -on -one with someone, um, if at all possible, uh, turn your camera on at least for a little bit to say hi, um, but then let the person know, hey, I'm gonna turn my camera off now. Um, in bigger meetings, it's okay to have your camera off. And in fact, it can be better to keep your camera off if it's a meeting with more than 20 people because, you know, seeing all these different little cameras shifting all the time can be distracting to anybody. Um, so it's better to just have the people who are speaking and presenting have their cameras on, um, again, if they're comfortable, um, and everyone else can have the luxury of being camera off. So, you know, I would say it really depends. Um, sometimes it's okay, and we should lean into it being okay for, for people to have their cameras off if they have a reason for it. Yeah, I agree with that, Nika. And maybe there is an opportunity, like back to the onboarding. So when onboarding, you can establish these norms, you know, like when you're speaking, it's preferable to have your camera on or at least say hello and then turn your camera off. But if you're not comfortable, by all means, you know, take care of yourself. That is actually another thing that has come up in our company during work from home and, and the concept of burnout and being on the screen all day, that it's actually okay to turn off your camera while you're in a meeting. You know, it is it is polite to say I'm here and I'm just eating or, or whatever, like I'm here and I'm going off camera so people know you're actually there. Um, but, you know, maybe some coaching with new people, that's that's a good way to kind of set those norms. 
Um, we are quickly running out of time. This always happens when the four of us get together, um, but I'm going to turn to some of the questions in. We've got two streams here. We've got the chat and the q and I'm going to go to the Q&A because we have some questions that have um, kind of been uh, thumbs up and kind of have gone to the top here. So I encourage you all to check those out. And if you have, if you want to give any of these thumbs up, please do, because I don't think we'll get to them all. Uh, so we have a question about onboarding product owners. We talked a bit about um, working with stakeholders. Nika, you had a great example there of how important that is to you. How about any tips for onboarding product owners who have a project delivery mindset that prioritizes and focuses on delivery and not discovery? So any recommendations on how to onboard these kinds of product owners? That's a tricky one because as UXers, regardless of how you're practicing your craft as a researcher, or as a designer, or program manager, writer, engineer, whatever you're doing that is your take on UX and your contribution there, I think I, depending on the company and the culture and people's background, there can be this very transactional service-based perspective to our work. And I think one thing that I've used in the past to help uh, combat that is uh, the hardest word, which is no. And if you can come back to these people and say, hey, you know, I, I, I hear your request. I want to be able to support you, maybe give visibility into your backlog. But you could also give, um, you know, give some clarity. You know, this is a great request, but in my expert uh, opinion, this would be giving us, uh, you know, plus or minus, however you're going to phrase it. You can be diplomatic about it, but you can push back on these. And I think that's a good moment. Earlier in the panel, someone was mentioning how important it is to give a little education about UX to your stakeholders as well. Maybe they're coming from a different place where UX did different things. Maybe they haven't worked with UX before or in a long time. So giving a little explanation of how you want your team to be working. Uh, maybe it, sometimes I've had teams where we have like a little, um, like a case study or some uh, place where you can say, hey, these are examples of ways we've worked in the past that have worked. Let me walk you through those. And we want to do more like this. Uh, so the hardest word, but I think probably one of the more impactful ones is to push back. I want to also add that I think it's really important to make sure you're getting alignment with the product owners that call the shots. Like I've worked with lots of PMs who are just metrics driven and only want to think about how to pull levers to move metrics and, you know, get their bonuses or their promotions or whatever. And usually when I land with them, I try to figure out like the slow roll, like how do I get to know what's really important for them? Like what are their hidden agendas that maybe I don't know about so that I can wrap that into my research program. You know, so it's like, let's say project manager A is really concerned about growth, right? And maybe growth isn't like a focus for the team right at that moment, but maybe there's some research that's happening that's kind of related. So making sure they have full buy-in to the work that we're going to be doing around that. And if you can, adding their specific questions to the research and inviting them in. I, my experience has been like once your product people see a session or like three or whatever, a whole you know series of sessions, they get so excited about it and they start to kind of get this like craving for it. They want more of it. So building that momentum is really important with people that are like that, I think. So start with trying to get alignment first and figure out what's important to them. Great. Um, switching back to online meetings, do you have any tips for how to manage and find space with overpowering extrovert types? Don't leave that space for others. <laughs> I can start. I call on people. So I, I 
it will intentionally call on uh, people who aren't speaking, who, you know, maybe that extrovert is overpowering um, or just or just exerting themselves <laughs> as they do. But then I, I'll be sure to actually call on people who may not feel like they have the space uh, to make sure their voice is heard. Absolutely. There may also be a need to talk about, sorry, geez, you know, this is the thing about Zoom calls. We still can't figure this out. Sorry, Julie. Go no ahead. Problem. Um, I was going to say another thing you can do is there's a lot of really great um, tools that you can use to kind of solicit broad team in, uh, invites. So you can use in Zoom, there's so many great polling tools. There's a can set up all sorts of different kinds of ways of ensuring everybody has a chance to interact. You can also, um, good meeting etiquette always, send out the agenda first and give people space in that agenda doc to write their feedback first. I think that helps all sorts of people come prepared, be ready for the conversation. Uh, and by having that, uh, people give me a chance to think before they talk, it does help balance out the team dynamic. Over to you, Rebecca. <laughs> I was just gonna say, I think it's a challenge. and. I think actually one of the benefits of us being in video calls um, is that you have those tools accessible to you. When you're in the room, it's all about getting a seat right at the table, not along the sides, but it's still hard because there's no way for you to kind of raise your hand except for to actually really raise your hand. Um, I've, I've heard some people using uh, like a proxy in the room to make sure that whoever's online and not in the room themselves is they're the person in real life is representing people who are online. Um, that's one way I've seen it done, but really to kind of get those people who have those big personalities and want to like just control the room, which, you know, we've all worked with them. Um, it's hard. It's like a culture shift to get everybody to feel empowered enough to step in and take up space when somebody else is taking up so much space. It's a really, really big challenge. It couldn't just be like you have a talk with them like, hey, you know, I don't know if you've noticed, um, but so-and-so doesn't speak up very often. Can you help me make sure that they are able to have space to the person who's taking up a lot of space so that they're more aware and looking for people who maybe want to jump into the conversation, so. One yeah, thing oh, sorry, Nika, you go. <laughs> um, one thing I'll add is, um, you know, I, I totally agree with Jen, um, you know, calling out uh, or calling on um, the folks in the room who are a little more quiet, making sure that they have a chance to speak. I think another good tactic um, that we use a lot at Microsoft is um, if, uh, if, if someone just like, you know, really has their point that they want to drill down on and they're not letting it go, somebody in the room, usually someone senior will say, hey, that's a great discussion. Let's table that and take it offline. And uh, it is completely acceptable in the culture uh, of my org for folks to say, oh, okay, yeah. And it's sort of like a, a little nudge, like this is going a little too far, let's take this offline. Um, no one feels bad about it, there's no hard feelings. Um, and I think that's just something that, you know, you get a couple of people who are comfortable with doing it. Um, and then now everyone feels comfortable with saying, hey, let's table this discussion. And other people feel comfortable with, you know, not getting offended by that and saying, oh yeah, I, uh, I'll take this offline. Yeah, I've, I've had that before where we have, um, I forget what we call it, the sandbox or something. Even in live meetings, when things come up that are out of scope, we just write it up on the whiteboard. The other thing I want to mention, Rebecca, you mentioned the raising of hands. 
I've, I have been in meetings where some folks are in person and some folks are online and in Google meet, we do have the raise hand option. So that's like another way. If you encourage people to raise their hands, whether it's in person and physically raise your hand, or if you're online then you can use the raise hand feature, if you encourage people to do that, then that's another way to make sure people feel comfortable and other voices are heard. Okay, in our last minute, you touched on back-to-back -back meetings. Any tips for blocking out time to actually get hands-on and do the work and focus on a project? I was just trying to type out an answer to this. <laughs> so I was going really quickly. Um, at Google, we have it in our culture that you put DNS and then like ask first or something like, like do not schedule and like child pickup or something. And then you block that time off. It is within the culture that they respect that and don't usually put any meetings that are really important for you to be at over that time. That was not the case when I was at Facebook, which is a lot harder to block off time. So what I would normally do is block off morning or at the end of the day, and then I would write in the title of the block, please ask before scheduling, so that there was at least this, like people understood that this is heads down time, it's something that I don't want to be scheduled over. So maybe try that, it's really hard, and it does take an entire culture shift of your team and the teams you work with, but it's worth keeping at it and making sure you have that heads down time because you can't just go meeting to meeting and expect yourself to be really effective. I'd also make is say no to meetings. I know that sounds easy to say and in practice is really hard to do, but you can fight for your time to get your work done. Um, ask for meeting notes to be taken, ask for things to be recorded, ask someone to be your proxy in the meeting, and that can help you carve out time and help you evaluate uh, your schedule, set your schedule rather than being reactive to how other people have set your schedule for you. So I think that's uh, one of the big learnings for me during COVID time is how much you can really uh, say no to meetings that are out there or get the same content a different way and still be part of that conversation. Yeah, there's a principle I learned that I, it's like a mantra, if you don't own your calendar, someone else will. Yeah, though I wanna get to director so I can have an <laughs> assistant own my calendar. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just be honest. <laughs> and then they can tell everybody no. <laughs> yeah, it's a good point you're making, actually, Rebecca, though, is that sometimes we're not at the we're not the ones empowered to make the decisions about our own calendars. And that does require a need to be flexible, but in the times when you're able to, it is I think really important to own that. And I also want to call out for people who sit out in APAC, you probably are getting called all hours of every day to possibly get these things done. And I think it's important for us to um, protect our own well-being, our mental health, and ensure that you're taking the time you need to get your work done and to disconnect. All right, well, it looks like we're a couple of minutes over. So I think that's a wrap. We are here as resources to you all. So don't hesitate to reach out if you want to ponder any of these things. If you'd like any tips, if you'd like to share yours, we'd love to hear them. You know, we're always growing as well. So thank you so much everyone for having us here today and have a wonderful rest of the conference.